Welcome back to the Reading Blues podcast, the place to find out more about the school and to connect with staff, pupils and parents at a deeper level. Each week we'll be interviewing people within the school community, asking them questions and spending time understanding more about them and more about the school. In this episode, we speak to Sean Lambert, Head of Classics at Reading Bluecoat School. We're going to find out what classics actually looks like at the school, the benefits of studying it, what a liberal education is, and also the concept of diversity of thinking. So come with me and let's explore the world of Reading Bluecoat through the eyes of Sean Lambert. Sean, thank you for joining us on the Reading Blues podcast. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. It's, um, it's the Tuesday before half term, so I'm counting down to that week off that I think we've all been looking forward to, not least um, to having finished all the assessments for the, the GCSE and A-level candidates. Tell me a little bit more about those assessments for GCSE and A-level candidates. How do they all work? Well, in Latin, we've been quite lucky that we've been able to give them pretty much the same exams as they would have had had they sat the A-levels in the normal way. It's been difficult for the students because these exams have been compressed into a shorter period of time and they've come a little bit earlier. So they have my sympathy, definitely, but I think they will get the grade that that they deserve at the end of the day. Now, you're head of classics at the school. Just in case anyone's listening to this and they're wondering actually what that means, first of all, what is classics, just for anyone listening? Yeah, classics is an interesting word because it, it, it can mean two separate things. So there is the idea of classics as a, um, an academic subject, which is not a subject taken in schools. Classics is a degree that you do at university and it involves the study of Latin and Greek literature, history and philosophy in the original language. So if you are not keen on studying ancient languages, you can do an alternative course, which is called classical civilization or classical studies and it doesn't sound that different but there is quite a fundamental difference between the two subjects so if you study classical studies you will read the same literature as someone doing classics but you will read an English translation rather than text in the original language. Ah okay which of those does Reading Bluecoat tend to major in? Uh, Well we we teach Latin and Greek as separate subjects at GCSE and A-level for whom the language does hold an interest and then for those students that maybe find the complexity of the language beyond them but are still interested in the classical world they are able to take an A-level qualification called classical civilization which is like classical studies at university so it's the same sort of texts but in English rather than in the target language. I see I see right understood okay well we're going to come on to that in a bit more detail in a moment but I wonder whether you could just tell us a little bit more about your role at the school, what it means to be in that position, how long you've been at the school as well. Yeah, it's, I, I'm in my third year now, and it's, I guess, a five-year plan initially. Uh, when I came to the school, there were fewer than 25 boys taking Latin or classical civilization. We now have about 250. Gosh, wow. Across GCSE and, and A-level, is that... Uh, yes, but the, the bigger numbers um, really come from the school deciding that Latin should be compulsory for all boys in year seven and eight so that they all right. get a taste of it. It's, you know, Latin is not necessarily for everyone. And I, I speak to a lot of people who maybe thought they didn't like Latin when they were a child. But when they have grown up, they can definitely see the advantages of it. And they're always glad that they did do it, even if they maybe didn't um, uh, do it terribly well at the time. 
so, and, and I think the school feels that uh, as, as we become a, um, more of an academic school, that offering Latin to years seven and eight is, is something that all boys should do. And the idea then is that um, having a, a more dense pipeline leading up to GCSE, GCSE and A-level qualifications, we will get more boys taking it. So currently the GCSE classes are quite small there, um, one's seven and one's nine. The A-level numbers are small. We've got two doing A-level Latin in year 13, and we've got four doing it next year in year 12. So they get a lot of attention, which is good. Um, and, and I think there's a fair amount of self-selection going on. I mean, in year 11, we only had five boys doing GCSE Latin, but four of them have chosen to carry on with A-level Latin. So, you know, the ones that choose it, they, they do like it. And you indicated that there's less of an interest or less of a, an understanding as to the relevance, possibly, of Latin in years seven and eight. What are some of the arguments that boys at that age might put forward as to why they're having to study Latin in the first place? Yeah, I think. well, I think the, the, the usual argument is that Latin is a dead language, so what, what's the point in teaching it? And I think that speaks to a fundamental misunderstanding about what a liberal education should be providing people um, and you read a lot in the press at the moment they're talking about Covid providing a reset for British education um, and that we should we should all be thinking more carefully about what we do in school and I think people for some reason think that schools are you know places where you learn about what you're going to do in in later life and and that is frankly ridiculous because you can't go to school and learn how to be a shop assistant or a carpenter or a computer programmer because a the world of business changes all the time so if you were trained in that kind of thing you would be um, out of date by the time you left school and did that job and what schools are trying to do is equip students with skills that they can that they can take into the into the world of work and problem solving is probably um, one of the most important things that you will learn and especially problem solving in abstract situations where you you know you don't necessarily understand fully what you're trying to do and that's where difficult academic subjects like physics or chemistry history maths latin greek they come into that because you're forced to think about something of which you do not have a direct experience and and that expansion of your cognitive abilities is is really important and in a liberal education i think we the idea is that we present pupils with a wide array of subjects the idea being they find something they love and something that they're good at and they pursue that until the end of university and by the time they graduate they are extremely good at applying themselves and thinking about things and it doesn't matter if they then don't use that subject necessarily and people people talk about maths as being really relevant but you know, anyone who's done a-level maths knows that you don't use any of it in the real world but that ability to think and problem solve is is vital so this phrase, liberal education, it's, it's not a phrase you often hear in the media. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that actually means? Yeah, I guess it's, it, it comes from um, Roman and Greek ideas of education and about what, what it means to be educated. And it, obviously education comes from the Latin educo, which means to, to, to lead out of yourself. So it's the idea of getting the best out of yourself, being the best version of yourself that you can be. And I think the idea of liberal comes from this, this sense of free thinking, both in terms of what you learn, but also the choices that you have. So uh, the UK education system is quite controversial because 
children are allowed to specialise quite early. And there's a lot of call from people that, you know, we should all be made to do maths or we should all be made to do English until the age of 18. I, I always say to uh, pupils that I come across, you have to do what you like and what you're good at because that will lead you to what you like and what you're good at. If you have a notion that you want to be a doctor but you don't like chemistry, forcing yourself to do chemistry so that you can be a doctor is, is not a sensible move and you will probably end up being a poor doctor or a miserable doctor if it's been such a massive struggle to get there. So liberal education really gives you the freedom of thought and the freedom of choice to engage yourself and, and yeah, become, a, become a, a freer and better thinker. And do you think that there's more acceptance in the world today or in the UK today for students to, to follow what they're good at and what they like as opposed to doing what may be expected of them? Well, I th yeah, I mean, as ever, there's a... There's a pragmatic angle for education, this kind of um, you know, grad grindian idea that everything is just training for life. And you hear a lot of rhetoric from government, especially about the need to train people in STEM subjects because STEM is the future. Um, and I would argue that actually allowing students to follow subjects that they really love and enjoy will allow them to reach a higher standard in their education, um, be better thinkers. And then if they choose to go into one of these subjects subsequently, then they're, they're all, all the better equipped for it. Uh, let's take computer programming. I didn't do computer studies at university, but if you can learn Latin and Greek, and there's a lot of data about this, computer programmers who have classics degrees are much sought after because code is essentially language. And if you can manipulate language in an abstract way, then doing it on a machine as opposed to with texts from two and a half thousand years ago is, is not going to be any more of a challenge. That's interesting because you wouldn't imagine uh, some of the best coders in the country as having a background in classics. I'm not suggesting that all of them do, but the fact that you're saying that there's a link there is, is a very interesting one. Yeah, and I think um, w one of the benefits of classics, and certainly the reason I really enjoyed Latin and Greek, is that I, I have a creative side, but I also have an analytical side and many subjects do not allow you to indulge those two. You know, maybe philosophy does to a degree, but Latin is, it is code when you're decoding the text, but then you need to be creative and understand human beings to talk about the texts. They're, the texts are about people. They're not about, they're not texts about texts. They're not texts about programming or logic. So I, I really enjoyed the ability, to, or the, the, the opportunity rather to, meld those two sides of my personality and my brain in my academic studies. And it's interesting that you mentioned about the difference between analytical and creativity. Do you think that sometimes in life we tend to polarise those two areas of education and force people into thinking that they are either one or the other as opposed to a combination of both? A absolutely. I think, I think the world is full of false dichotomies such as these. And again, if you look at the world of work, if everyone is thinking analytically, you are not going to have a successful organisation. And likewise, if you've got a lot of people being creative but getting nothing done, they're, they're probably not going to be successful. And I, I was minded of an article I read about um, Fred Goodwin, who ran Royal Bank of Scotland um, when they did the reverse takeover of NatWest. And one of the major problems when the investigation took place subsequently 
uh, was the group thing that took place that everyone recruited in their own image so everyone in the bank had a degree in either economics or business studies they'd all learned the same theories they all saw the world in the same way and and you then get that lemming-like rush towards the deals that they were doing and and they didn't uh, they didn't think about things in a different way and and maybe they could have avoided some of the the mistakes they made if there had been a a contrary voice saying to them you know hang on have have you thought about it from this angle and certainly I, I, I don't know if you know but before I came into teaching my last job was as a graduate recruitment manager at an American bank uh, Merrill Lynch as was so now Merrill Lynch Bank of America and their recruitment strategy was really focused on diversity we you know we talk about diversity a lot but diversity of thinking is is really important as opposed to you know diversity of what people look like or where they come from and if you're putting together a business or certainly a deal in the city you need someone with a degree in physics and you need someone with a degree in english and you need someone with a degree in economics so that they can look at the deal in in different ways and and make sure that they are you know not just coming at it from one angle because that's that's when mistakes are made diversity of thinking i i, I love this concept of course in the world i'm wondering if if it's the kind of thing that people might be keen to follow but equally aware of the fact that you mentioned about diversity in terms of where people are from and how they look and how they appear in the world and of course that's something that's more apparent when you first come across an organization for example do you think that at times there's too much focus on that as opposed to that diversity of thinking well yeah i think so because like so many things in life it's easier to measure and it's easier to see so uh, and one thing that one thing that strikes me is that you look at the few um people from ethnic minority backgrounds who have been successful especially in business yes they they might have come from nigeria or pakistan or india but if you look at the schools they went to and the universities they went to th- there isn't much diversity there i i used to teach at eton college where there there was quite a lot of diversity in terms of racial and ethnic backgrounds but they, those boys may have looked different but they've been trained in exactly the same way as boris johnson david cameron jacob rees-mogg all the other old Etonians that seem to be running our country and we, you know we we can't help it we are products of our environment and our upbringing and that does force us to think in a certain way um which is another reason why I love classics coming back to that is because it it trains us to uh to think about the world in a different way it it forces us to look at the world through the prism of people two and a half thousand years ago and that that you know that is quite challenging but if you can train your brain to think like that that's you know it's good for you and it's good for, for the organizations you you work for one of the one of the best examples of this is um we talk a lot about empathy and, and i think it's mu- a much misused word but if you've if you've studied greek you understand the difference between empathy and sympathy uh, the root word pathos means feeling and sum or sune in greek means with whereas m or n means in so you can only empathize with someone if you have lived their experience if you are imagining what it is like to be so so for me if i imagine what it's like for someone in childbirth i can only be sympathetic with them i cannot empathize and having that you know that accuracy of expression and really understanding what your words mean i think is something that is definitely being lost in today's society
Mm, I was just about to ask you about that, whether people increasingly are using words which they don't really mean. And and I, I don't just mean from a direct comparison of the origins of the word like that. I'm thinking even things like when people use the word literally, when they don't mean literally at all. No, no, they don't. Well, an, a, an interesting example of that is the word sanguine, which I remember coming across it as a word and it comes from the obviously comes from the latin for blood sanguis sanguinis and i couldn't be bothered to look it up and i thought oh it it must be something to do with um being hot tempered or yeah and 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 it seemed to make sense anyway it, i then came across it again and it didn't seem to make sense in that respect so i looked it up and the dictionary definition is that it means positive thinking or optimistic um or positive in terms of your view of things and that that wasn't what i was expecting and I've now been paying more attention to the way it's used. And actually, a lot of people do use it in the way I thought it should be used. Okay. Um, and I and I fully expect the dictionary to update itself at, at some point. And, you know, the point of that is that language is innately flexible. Language takes on different meanings. And if you look at the postmodern um, ideas about reception theory, you know, they, there's always this argument about where does meaning reside? Does it reside in my brain as I try to explain something or does it reside in your brain when you receive that information where it where is meaning and of course you know like many of these things it's probably somewhere in between the two but language is constantly changing and shifting so tell me then about some of the additional benefits you've you've hinted at a couple of the benefits of of classics today but what other benefits are there for you know I'm thinking about maybe a parent listening to this thinking well I didn't do Latin I didn't do Greek I'm doing all right why why should my son or daughter do this at GCSE or A level well I think the you know the main reason comes back to what I said earlier that that pupils should do what they like and what they're good at and certainly the boys that do study Latin and like all subjects it's you know it's not for everyone not everyone loves it but the boys that love it really love it. And, and doing something for enjoyment is, in my opinion, the, the best reason for doing anything. So that, that would be my first reason. The second reason, which is a, you know, a bit more pragmatic and political, is that rightly or wrongly, when people see Latin or Greek on your CV, they assume some degree of intelligence. I'm, I'm not going to um, deny that. It's rare, it's niche, it's a bit unusual. So in today's world where there is rampant grade inflation and people have lots of good qualifications having qualifications that are slightly different and and show that you have a slightly different education to to the mainstream i think is is really useful possibly the most tricky question of all which is your favorite between greek and latin oh. <laughs> um i well that you see that that's a difficult one but most most classicists learn latin before they learn greek so my Latin is definitely better than my Greek. So I feel more comfortable in Latin. I still have to prepare my lessons quite carefully when I teach Greek. Greek is not as sticky a language as Latin. The, the cognates in the language are not as readily identifiable as Latin ones. So, you know, if you, if you think of words like gravis in Latin means heavy or serious, and we know that grave in English means something similar. So those hooks, cognitively are really important and and they make latin more accessible than greek if you look at greek words like paraskuasdor which means i prepare there's nothing there you know you, you're only going to learn that by um, being bloody minded and working hard at remembering it so I, I find greek more challenging but 
the flip side of that is that it is more exciting in some respects. Greek has, one of the reasons Latin and Greek are such great brain training um, is they have aspects to their language which we don't have in our, our language. Um, both of them are inflected languages, and by that I mean the endings of words change according to the function of that word in the sentence. So to understand that as an English person, if you look at the difference between I and me, we say I when it's the subject of the sentence, we say me when it's the object of the sentence. But that is something that English people get wrong a lot, and that's why English words are no longer inflected. Um, German and Russian are still inflected to a degree. Latin and Greek are both inflected. So that makes them challenging, um, and you have to learn the code, and you have to make your brain think about language in a different way. But Greek, as well as being inflected, has all sorts of other um, things in it that we don't have. It has things um, like particles, which are um, words which don't actually mean anything, but they create stress or tone in a, in a sentence. So, you know, for instance, we... We might, we might say the word um, indeed to, to stress something. They, they have those kind of words all over the language. And that can be quite right. interesting and, and, and challenging, but also gives you, again, a much more accurate indication of tone and meaning in the text. Mm. So let me push you then, Greek or Latin. If, if I had to take one of them away, which, which would I be taking away from you? Um, I'd, it always, for me, it always comes down to Virgil. He, he is my, my favourite poet, and I think if, you know, if, if we were doing a Desert Island books and I was allowed one book, it would, it would be the Aeneid. So I, I think you have to say Latin if you push me. OK, all right. Well, let's do that in that case. Sean, I'm keeping an eye on the time and Tempest Fugit. So if anybody had any follow-up questions and wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach out? Probably my school email address, which is sal at rbcs.org.uk. Well, look, thank you for your time being here today. It's been really good hearing about Latin and Greek and classics in total and its relevance today. Thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Simon. And that was Sean Lambert, Head of Classics at the school. Thank you, Sean, for spending time coming on to this episode of the podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with Sean, his email address is sal at rbcs.org.uk. He'll always be happy to help you I'm sure. And also don't forget that our next episode is coming out soon, so be sure to follow this channel. And it just means that when that next episode is released, you'll receive a small notification and that means you won't miss it. So look after yourselves. And in the meantime, we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.